0: Good morning, church family. Okay, it's good to be here. Um, I'm humbled by the uh, honor and privilege to uh, preach today, God's Word, and um, keep in prayer to uh, Pastor Jimmy and pretty much the entire Hill staff. Uh, They're out and about um, serving in in South Carolina. Um, They went to a pillar conference, and there's a wonderful wedding that they're celebrating in Virginia. So, um, you know, keep them in your prayers. And uh, we hope that uh, they come back with a lot of encouraging stories. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, gracious King and mighty Lord, the highest of all, creator and the only sovereign, To you we give glory, and to you we give praise. And dear Father, we thank you for the right and the privilege to call you, Father. And again, we come boldly before you, not because of any merit on our own, but solely upon the life, the death, and the resurrection of your Son. It is his blood that is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was his work on the cross where he absorbed the full wrath of God so that we might be set free, so that we might be cleansed and forgiven of all of our sins, and that we were set free so that we might then become adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Help us to just embrace that new identity By the power of your spirit, help us to live out that new identity for your honor and glory. And Lord, we we come to you humbly because um, we are not yet what we should be and what we've been called to be. We are sinners saved by grace. And Lord, we are needy and you are rich. So we come before you and we ask your help not just help with navigating life and the world in which we live in, but also for help within our own hearts. Lord, if we're often, um, if we're honest, often, Lord, we see many things in our hearts and our minds that do not belong there that are um, even offensive to you, Lord. Father, we ask that you help us to um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance of continually taking off the the old man, and putting on the new man that is in the image of Christ Jesus. And, Lord, we do pray um, for, for this world in which we live in. Um, we first and foremost pray that the gospel will go out, that the hope of all nations, Jesus Christ, will be uh, proclaimed and made known. But, Lord, we do pray, too, for um, the dear people in Florida who have recently been um, hit by a hurricane, Lord. Um, We pray, Lord, that uh, many of their lives um, have been completely shaken, um, homes destroyed, workplaces gone. um, Their homes uh, look like a wasteland, Lord. Father, I pray that in the midst of this tragedy um, that you will glorify yourself, that you will show yourself to be strong, merciful, gracious, a source of hope even in hard times, Lord. May this, Lord, help us, too, just to see how fragile life really is and how life is truly a gift that can be taken away in an instant. Lord, I pray, too, uh, for our dear brothers and sisters um, that are traveling along the East Coast, um, going to conferences, uh, helping plant new churches, um, celebrating the joy of a wedding. Watch over them, protect them, keep them safe. Bring them back, um, being encouragers as well as being encouraged. And Lord, uh, I ask right now, Lord, that uh, you would just speak to us um, through your word, give us understanding um, through your spirit. Lord, today's passage in Acts deals with the fear of the Lord, how it's pure, it's refining. It helps refocus us. It helps us approach you with the right posture. Just remembering that we deserve to be forsaken by you, each and every one of us. But yet, because of your son, who was forsaken so that we could be forgiven, we have hope. We have grace. We have forgiveness. We have new identity, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would understand in a deeper measure the fear of the Lord. That although it might be something that causes us to tremble, when we come and approach you and receive grace, we leave with hearts full of joy. May we understand that the fear of the Lord is something that always drives us to you. It tells us that there is no place safer than at the foot of the cross and at the feet of our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us not to confuse the fear of the Lord with being afraid of you, Lord. Um, May we learn today through your word how precious the fear of the Lord is and how your people are to be marked by the fear of the Lord. I just ask you, Lord, to do a, a miracle in our lives and in our hearts and transform our minds so that not only would we rightly fear you and love you and adore you, but also have a spirit of humility where we can truly worship together in harmony, live our lives in harmony without strife, encouraging one another and loving one another and serving one another and caring for one another. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today's passage um, is in Acts 5, 1 through 11. Um, I was given to preach Ananias and Sapphira. Out of all the miracles in the Bible, I get the ones where Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. (laughs) Well, the main idea of today's passage, the main thrust is the fear of the Lord will drive us to the grace of God found in Christ Jesus, so that the family of God can worship and live in harmony with one another as they declare the gospel together. Let's turn to Acts 5.11 together. I'll read this passage. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. As we um, ponder God's word today and, and study it and ask for the Lord to, to change and transform our hearts, I think we need to just revisit a couple things. First of all, um, keeping in mind what the purpose of miracles, signs, and wonders are all about um, miracle signs and wonders um, in the Bible were always to give accreditation to Jesus Christ, the gospel message, as well as the newly birthed church that we're here reading about in Acts. Um, miracles were never just an ends and a means in and of themselves, but they were always to point to Christ, point people back to God's Word, and realize that God is true, that He is trustworthy that his word is sure. Miracles were always to point to Christ so that God could reveal himself to man that we might rightly know him and also rightly worship. I think, too, when we take a look again at these miracles, we have to realize that these miracles are sandwiched right in between Acts 4, 31, 33 and Acts 5, 1216. We often think of the, the birth of the new church, of, uh, and almost I think some of us might even have a little bit of envy of just how um, God's spirit was being poured out upon his people. Miracles were happening left and right. It would seem, um, you know, Jesus, when, when he walked through the clouds, crowds, um, we can remember the, the woman with the bleeding issue who just wanted to grab his cloak and he, she was healed just by touching his cloak. We have Peter here walking through the crowds, and people are just wanting, to f- wanting his shadow to fall upon him so that he'd be healed. So there was healing taking place. Demons are being drived out. But in the midst of all of these miracles, these two miracles are noted as well. So I need, we need to take heart of that. Um, we often wish that we could be back in those days. Um, Many churches might be <laughs> um, missing a few members, <laughs> if, okay? This was a special time in the church, okay? This was a very special time in the church. I think we should also take a look at how this parallels the newly birthed Israel. If you remember, if we turn back um, to, to the Old Testament where we see um, Israel is just being birthed, it's not even a nation, okay? It's, it's a 12 tribes, um, a family that has been enslaved by the Egyptians. Um, but God calls them to be a nation, and therefore they become a nation. And how does he do that? By sending plagues to deliver them from the Egyptians. And he takes them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and makes what, a group of people that were slaves now a free people. And as this nation was being birthed, Josh was about to, as he's taking them into the promised land, and they defeat um, Jericho, the city of Jericho. They come upon the city of Ai. And it was a small city, not that well defended, not that many people were there. And the Israelites were routed. Okay? They were routed because of a certain man from the tribe of Judah. His name was Achan. Okay? God said that when they take the spoils that they were supposed to burn and everything was devoted to fire, that it was the Lord's. But Achan saw some gold and silver and he took it for himself. It says he kept it back, and he hid it. So when Israel went into battle the next day, they were defeated, they were routed by a much smaller army. God was using this to make Israel know that God is God. Take God seriously. Achan and his his family then were put to death. So when we look at this today, we have to realize that Luke is also giving an account of the early church. Um, We might tend to romanticize or even idealize how everything was in common and everything seemed to be in peace and harmony, and it was a beautiful thing. Um, But it had its flaws. And here Luke brings to the surface that this was not a perfect utopia, that the early Christians, too, struggled with sin. And just reminds us that we will never have heaven here on earth until our Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And when he comes back, he will reign in justice and righteousness and peace forever and ever. Okay, so let's turn and focus on verses 1 through 6. Okay, and this, I'd give this, um, here we see Ananias breaks faith. He lies to the spirit and he dies. Verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Let's stop right there at the word but. Whenever we see the word but, (laughs) it it should get our attention. See, what's going on here is this is setting up a contrast. First of all, in the prior chapter that we just read, we heard about Joseph, who was renamed Barnabas. Barnabas did a beautiful thing. He sold his property and all the proceeds of his property he put down at the apostles' feet. It was a beautiful gesture of trusting in God. And he was even renamed by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. But here we see Ananias does not do likewise. Rather, his offering, his worship is dishonest and even fraudulent. We also are having a a contrast set up between Ananias, who it says that Satan filled his heart, okay? As opposed to the church who is supposed to be spirit filled. So here we have a contrast between Satan filled and spirit filled. We also have a contrast of the worship of Ananias, which was dishonesty, it was pride, and it was ambition versus the harmony, humility, and generosity that Barnabas offered and the church was experiencing. See, when dishonesty and pride and selfishness enters into the community of God, it breeds strife, competition, comparisons. There is no harmony. But when we humbly come to Christ as his children, in humility and realizing that we need his grace, this beautiful and fragile community can thrive on trusting God and trusting one another. The other thing I want us to take note in this verse here is the names of these two characters are very ironic and sadly ironic. Ananias actually means the Lord is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful, okay? We see here soon that Ananias actually um, takes God's grace for granted, and Sapphira's worship is anything but beautiful. In verse 1-2, we need to take note that it says that they sold a piece of property. Again, this wording, sold and property, um, it shows, it displays, it reveals that the early church believed in personal property, okay? Okay? They, they had their own belongings. Let's go to verse 2. And, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, um, first of all, with his wife's knowledge, um, Ananias and Sapphira, they both were guilty. Okay? They were both willing um, com- compliances in this. They... Um, they knew what they were doing, and it was deceit and even fraud because the word kept back, that, that phrase kept back, doesn't pop up too often, um, but when it does, it's a Greek term that means financial fraud. So there's more than just a lie. There's some sort of fraud taking place, and this, this same Greek word um, for kept back is also the same, same Greek word that's used in the Greek Old Testament that goes back to Achan's sin, of keeping back what was devoted to God. There's, what's being implied here is there's theft. And I, I would, I, I'm going to, as we read through this, I'm going to suggest that um, there's more than just financial theft taking place here. Um, And then two, we we don't know for sure um, what was going on here. We don't know that um, if Ananias and Sapphira made some kind of vow um, to God. We don't know if maybe they actually sold it to a member of the church, and maybe the member of the church was willing to even give more than the price that it was worth because they knew that it was going back into the church and for the needs of the poor. Um, We don't know, but I'm going to suggest that maybe the greatest theft of all is stealing from the glory of God. And here's the, the lie. They brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This was deception. They were trying to pull one over on the apostles, this early church community, and the Spirit of God, God Himself. We might ask why doesn't Luke give us all the details of this lie or fraud, what was going on? First and foremost, God gives us exactly what we need to know. <laughs> we know it was a lie. We know it was a fraud. We know that it was um, purposeful. Um, But there's also a good chance that Luke was writing to an audience that actually lived through this and remembered it. And not only that, but they were part of the ones that feared God. And see, I think the fear of God probably drove them to say, but for grace, I too would go. They knew that they were completely capable of committing the same sin outside of God's grace. Um, I don't know about you, but do any of you struggle um, with success? Okay? When I look through the pages of the Bible, it seems to be almost a reoccurring pattern that as God's people are blessed and blessing is poured out upon them, that they're quick to forget their dependency upon God. And they quickly begin to think that they're self-reliant. And after a while, they begin to believe that God's really not as important as they think. It's often, though, when hardships, trials, or even persecutions that come into our life, that we begin to realize just how fragile we are, how little power we have, and how much we truly need God. And see here, the church needed to have a little refining um, There's peace and prosperity. But I think during that peace and prosperity, certain members began to think about how could they elevate themselves, how could they gain more, and how could they take this beautiful, fragile community and use it for their own selfish gain? We need to take heart that whether we are in times of goodness and prosperity or times of difficulty, the fear of God always reminds us We need God, that outside of him there is no grace, there is no hope. He is our source of goodness. He is our prize. And then in verse 3, we have the word again, but. Okay? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This but is telling us that there's something tragically wrong with this act of worship. Peter asks, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? We see, I believe this is no different than going back to Genesis 3 with the, the original sin. I think Ananias and Sapphira, just like Adam and Eve, they doubted the goodness of God. They believed that God was withholding something from them. They believed that God's goodness was not enough. And see, lying to God is actually the opposite of faith. It declares, I don't trust you. It declares, God, you're not good. Lying to God says, I don't want you to know me. See, Ananias took God's grace for granted. He lost hold of the fear of God. The grace of God provided by Christ was not good enough for him, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him to be encouraged by Barnabas and his act of worship being a source of encouragement to others. He saw that, and he wanted that same honor for himself. He believed the same lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden. God's holding out on you. And I believe, too, that we can even break it down to the lust of the flesh Uh, For Ananias was keeping back some of the money for his own security. The lust of the eyes. He coveted the honor that Barnabas received. When he saw him honored and renamed by the apostles, he wanted that too. The pride of life. He used the very act of worship as a platform to elevate himself. You see, God has called all of us to be living sacrifices were our lives to glory to God, not to ourselves. Barnabas's act was led by the spirit of God. Ananias act of worship was led by the flesh. Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After all it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? So let's Let's take a look at what Peter's addressing here. While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. Peter again is addressing the believer's right to own private property, even in the early church. And then he says, after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter again addresses that the believer had the right to keep some of the money back for himself. Okay, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing to be looked down upon that. It was the lie, it was the deception. It was the fraud that was the sin. These statements make it very clear that this was a lie, that there was a fraudulent act that took place, that there's theft against a holy God and against the community of God, ultimately God himself. See, these statements make it very clear that the early church was not a cult, nor did it adopt some sort of communism or socialism, where private property was assimilated by the community, where private ownership of property and goods was frowned upon, or even seen as lacking faith. Rather, the opposite is true. Let's think about this. The only way to be truly generous and selfless can be expressed through a grace-filled community where individuals, freely of their own volition, give of self and of personal possessions to others. Not by force, nor by guilt, nor debt, but because of love. That glorifies God. I'd like to give you an illustration from my own life, which might be similar to you. Every month, I get a notice in my bank statement electronically that there's been a withdrawal made to choose his gym. Okay? And you know what? Every month... I never once has ever gotten a thank you from Choose Jim for that th- payment. I don't know why. They've been, they've, I, every month I'm faithful at doing that. But... And you know what? Every year I have to pay the IRS thousands of dollars. And you know what? I've never had the government once come back to me and say thank you for paying your taxes. But you know what? Every Sunday, one of the leaders here at the Hill will give thanks to the Hill Church family for their faithful and generous tithes and offerings. Do you know why? Because we don't owe God anything. We don't owe him anything for the membership into his family. We don't owe our brothers or sisters anything for the sins that we've committed against one another. Do you know why? Because Jesus... Paid for it all. Jesus paid for it all. The only thing we owe one another is a continuing love debt for one another because of the love of Christ. See, when we worship rightly and come to God fearing Him, realizing that we don't bring anything to the table but it's what Christ has done for us, then we can freely and joyfully give back. Okay? Give to the community. Give to the cause of the kingdom and spreading and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter asks again, why did he lie? The sad truth is that Ananias believed the lie that the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which actively and supernaturally was manifesting itself through this gospel community, the church, was not enough. Rather than humbly worship Christ and come to him as a needy sinner saved by grace and still in need of grace, he turned worship into idolatry, where he attempted to elevate himself rather than glorify God. This is not the gospel, it is an anti-gospel. And this is the outcome, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Brothers and sisters, this is a miracle. Okay, first of all, Peter does not have the power to read minds. Okay? This lie, this fraudulent act It was revealed to him by the Spirit of God. Second of all, Peter did not, and he even made this confession, he didn't have power to heal the sick or drive out demons on his own. Nor could he cause someone to drop dead. He didn't even tell Ananias that he was going to die. God just struck him down. And this term, breathes his last. Again, this is a very unique expression. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's in Acts 12, 23. And, and the background of this is King Herod is standing before the people of Tyre and Sidon who are experiencing a food shortage. And he's supplying food to them, and he gives this, um, this announcement to them. He makes this grand statement to all of them. And as they listen to him, the people cry out, This is the voice of God, not the voice of man. And immediately it says he breathed his last. And worms ate him. He, he dropped dead on the spot. And scripture says it's because he did not give glory to God. You see, Ananias was guilty of more than just financial fraud. He was attempting to rob glory from God through worship. Worship is always all about glorifying Christ, who he is and what he has done, not ourselves. And it says, And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Okay, I want to I address a question that I know that probably many of you are asking right now um, before we begin considering the, the fear of the Lord and what it is and what it is not. Um, maybe some of you, if not today or another time, might have been asking, Is God being a little harsh here? Um, after all, isn't this kind of a trivial sin? when we take a look at all the other possible sins that have happened throughout the Bible and and happen today, I could simply answer this question with a correct theological response of God is righteous, and there is no such thing as a trivial sin against God. All sin is an act of rebellion and heinous treason treason against a God who is good. But I think it will be more edifying to consider the holiness and the justice of God to truly appreciate His long-suffering mercy and amazing grace, um, if I think everyone here has access, probably to the internet, um, if you could ever get a hold of any of R.C. Sproul's sermons, um, he does. He has some really good messages and sermons on the holiness of God, which are worth listening to. And if I can summarize just one, where he speaks about the holiness of God, um, we need to realize that God is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. There is no hint of any type of lie or dishonesty in him. Okay? We have a picture um, from the prophets in the Old Testament of holy creatures that have six wings and they stand before the, the throne of God, and, or they're flying above, and they, they have two wings that cover their feet and two wings that cover their eyes and two wings that keep them afloat. And they're crying day and night, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in this holiness, he is also just. God cannot be anything but just. And if we go back to the beginning in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled against God, when they said, we don't trust you, you're withholding something from us, we can do life on our own, God could have given them exactly what they wanted and given them life on their own, which would have been death. It's the very Spirit of God. It's His very Word that sustains us and keeps us alive. And if God were to forsake any one of us, lights out. And see, God told Adam and Eve that if they were to take the fruit in the middle of the garden, that they would die. And yes, Definitely there's a a spiritual death, but there's also a physical death. And the only reason that Adam and Eve had a series of breaths after that sin was because of God's loving kindness and mercy. So when we look at something like this and say, Is God being harsh? We should really act, ask, wow, God was so merciful and so long suffering for such a long time. And also, too, there's something here that God God is love. God is doing something, too, for his community, he's protecting it. And also, too, God might just be saying to Ananias and Sapphira, You can't handle my grace. I'm taking you home to be with me now. See, even physical death that we receive as a consequence from our sin is an act of mercy, because otherwise, if these bodies were to continue forever, these earth suits that we wear, we would continue throughout eternity to struggle with sin and evil and wickedness. It's only in Christ that we have a promise of new bodies, resurrected bodies we will not have the sting of death and of sin amongst us anymore. God is holy. He is long-suffering and merciful. And He is just. The fear of God, what is it? What isn't it? The fear of God definitely is not something that causes us to run away from God. Okay? Being afraid of God shows that our fear is really of the consequences um, and not trusting in Him. It's running from God shows us that someone that they're not, they're not properly understanding what God is all about and who He is. And it's rather chasing, trying to live life on our own and live in sin and rebellion. Tony Evans, I think, gives a real simple explanation of what the fear of God is. He says it's taking God seriously. Okay? When we look at the, the Proverbs too, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools don't value God. Fools have no desire to be with God. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride, and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 8.13. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 16.6. The fear of the Lord, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord, I think, is very important for us as evangelists. If we love people, we want to tell them that there is a way to escape the coming wrath of God. It's by turning to Christ who absorbed the wrath of God for us. Hebrews also warns us not to take light of the Lord's discipline. He disciplines Peter also, later to the persecuted church, reminds them that since judgment starts in the household of God, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel? The fear of God is a holy, purifying agent that draws us to God, where we can find his grace in Christ and experience joy. The fear of the Lord will always cause us to pursue God and not run away. Because we know that our only hope for mercy, forgiveness, and grace is found in Christ. And this, once experienced, will lead to a joyful giver, a life of thankfulness. But the self-righteous, the atheists, and the wicked have no fear of God because they do not value God. They can only fear the consequences of God's righteous judgment because they have not fled to Christ for forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And then in the middle here, we have the young men, verse 6, rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I really don't know what to do with this verse other than say Luke is just being real. Um, This possibly might be a new ministry for young men in the church, hopefully one that's not exercised too often. Um, But Ananias was buried. Let's move on to verses 7 through 11. The focus now is on Sapphira. Um, Sapphira tests the Lord, um, lies to the Spirit, and dies. Um, Again, Ananias and Sapphira's sins are are the same, but I think Luke here is shedding a different light on the the facet of this tragic sin. In verse 7 it says, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So here, not knowing what had happened, Luke is plainly telling us that, once again, Sapphira uh, meets Peter and she has no idea of the consequences of Ananias' the nice sin. Therefore, her response should be, should be pure. It's, it's, it reveals her, her motives, okay? Um, if she knew that her husband died, her motives might be, once again, just, ooh, got to do what's right now or else I'm going to die too. This gives her an opportunity to come completely clean. And in verse 8... Um, and Peter said to her, "Tell me whether you sold the land for so much?" And she said, "Yes, for so much." Again, Peter's giving her an opportunity to come clean, but she says, "Yes, she lies. She embraces the deception, the fraudulent act, fully knowing that she is being dishonest, not only to the apostle Peter, but also to this beautiful fragile, trusting, gospel-centered community and ultimately the spirit of God. And the word here is to test. In verse 9, Peter says to her, How is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. She's testing. She's testing God. And how? How is she testing God? I think she's asking, is the Spirit of God really omniscient? Does he know everything? Does he know everything I say, I do, even the thoughts of my heart? The answer is yes. Is the Spirit of God holy? Holy. Is he really pure, righteous, true, unchanging? Is sin this offensive act against God? The answer is yes. Is the Spirit of God just? Maybe God tolerates sin. Maybe sin is not that big of a deal. Well, it sure is. And maybe God's grace covers me just to live however I want and do whatever I want. I'll just use God's grace as a license for sin. No, God is just. Is the Spirit of God jealous? Does he allow other idols to come into our lives and to share our worship with these other things and, and steal the love that he deserves? Yes, God is a jealous God, and he does not tolerate those things. See, and I think the last question is, is the Church of Christ really all about making disciples and proclaiming the gospel Or is it about meeting my selfish ambitions and desires? Brothers and sisters, we've been called together, um, and our unifying cry is the Lord Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. Um, That's what the early church is about, and that's what we're about today. In verse 10, it says, Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Again, this, this immediacy, this language, this act—it is a miracle. Um, it is one of the marks of the early church. And again, this phrase "breathed her last" is that that same phrase. It's only used here and one other place. In the New Testament, it's in reference of stealing glory from God, not giving God glory. We see, again, Sapphira, rather than telling the truth and coming to repentance, she chooses to change worship into elevating herself, which is a distortion of true worship and saying that God is worthy. Again, this distortion is not of just worship, but of the gospel itself. In the early stages of this new gospel community, clarity and purity of the gospel was essential. Why does God perform this repeat miracle? Again, back to my opening statements, miracles are designed to point us to our need for Christ and the gospel. These two miracles are making a distinction between what is genuine and what is false. God is committed to his holiness and executing his salvation plan through faith in Christ alone by proclaiming the gospel which has been entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ. These miracles, again, are giving accreditation to the authority of the gospel message and the legitimacy of the church. The church of Jesus Christ was birthed by the power of the Spirit of God, not man making this very clear that this is God, not man. And verse 11 says, again, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the first time that the word church is used in the Bible. That should grab our attention. This is the very first time that the word church is used in the Bible, and it's Marked by these miracles, the holiness of God and the fear of God. This Greek word, ecclesia, in the Greek just means um, citizen assembly. Or we could say it would here in this, this passage mean the assembly of the citizens of God's kingdom. Okay? God is putting a sign and wonder to say, This is my kingdom. These are my people. I am their God. This is significant. This is something to take seriously. God's people here are marked with a holy fear that drives us to the grace of God and helps keep us focused. It is a purifying agent. We are never to take God's grace for granted, nor have a casual attitude towards the worship of God. Our worship and our fellowship is sacred to God. It is made, possibly, is made possible only through the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. True worship is man's proper response to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It always will elevate and glorify the Father by the Son of God and through the Holy Spirit. This is God's work here on earth. What I'd like to do is just close um, again with the main idea. This reminds us that the fear of the Lord will drive us to the grace of God found in Christ Jesus so that the family of God can worship and live in harmony with one another as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus together. I'm going to go back and look at... Let's again compare the worship of Ananias and Sapphira with the worship of Barnabas. We see that the, the worship, the offering of Ananias and Sapphira was an ugly act of disgracing the grace of God. But on the other hand, when we turn back to Acts 4, we see that Barnabas's worship and offering was a beautiful and encouraging response to the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Barnabas' offering was pointing us to what Christ did. I I think we need to to go back um, in Acts here. Acts 4, 36. Actually, let's go back a little further, sorry. Um, I'll just start with 33. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite of a na- and native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Scripture brings out a very interesting detail about this Joseph who was later renamed Barnabas. He was a Levite. Now, if you know anything about the Levites in the Old Testament, the Levites were one tribe, one family, that they did not receive land. They were not given an inheritance, a possession in Israel. In fact, they weren't supposed to own land because scripture says, the Lord says, I am your inheritance. The Lord God was their inheritance. So this act of Barnabas was truly beautiful and encouraging. I think it may have actually also could have been an act of repentance. Levites weren't supposed to own land, And not only that, he was living in Cyprus as a foreigner. Here's the beautiful picture of him receiving and accepting God's grace where he sold his property, his home, so that he could live with the people of God and be a blessing to them. See, that that points to Christ so powerfully. What did Jesus do? Jesus left his home in heaven, left the glory, the majesty, the beauty of heaven, and came down to earth. And he put on flesh and blood to become one of us so that he could do what? live amongst us. And not only that, now Joseph gave of his property, but Jesus did so much more. He gave his very life for the life of the church. He took the sins of the world and placed them upon himself so that all who would put their trust and faith in who Christ is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, And also the work that he did, that he paid the debt in full for all of our sins so that we could be set free, so that we could be God's family, and so that he could dwell amongst us. What a beautiful, encouraging picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's turn our hearts to prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we pray we we do turn our hearts to you and you alone, for you are worthy. And Lord God, we thank you for the grace of the fear of God. The fear of God that opens our eyes, an inward conviction that we deserve, in and of ourselves, to be forsaken because we're sinners, we're rebels. And as we embrace that truth, it drives us to our only hope, your Son, Jesus Christ. There at the foot of the cross, that is where we find forgiveness. That is where we find healing. That is where we find our guilt and shame to be removed. And you don't just give us forgiveness but you give us sonship you give us an inheritance that will last forever and never ever fade as the apostle Paul says no mind can imagine no heart can even begin to ponder the good that is in store for those who love Christ Jesus father you are so gracious and good May we always embrace the fear of God so that we can experience the grace of God and the joy of knowing you as our Father. We thank you and praise you for your Son and your Word and your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.